welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Our Scripture reading is uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, I've even asked the sound booth to, to, re, to stitch this in, to record it and stitch it in with the message this week because it is so important to have the context uh, of this passage and uh, for people to understand the book of Ephesians as it leads up to this passage. You know, in chapter 1 we're told that, that we are chosen of God, that we are predestined uh, as recipients of grace. Then chapter 2 begins talking about how we were all by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, uh, but God being rich in mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, uh, he's shown us his grace in his son, and uh, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So talking about those predestined, uh, those who are uh, brought to God and faith as a gift of God. Um, then we enter into verse 11, speaks about uh, the church and Jew and Gentile together. So I'm going to read through this, and I'm going to give uh, just a tiny about, uh, amount of explanation as I go through, uh, just to help emphasize to us just how uh, how pivotal this passage is. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you Gentiles were at that time separate from Christ, Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far, far off Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall but by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances so that in himself he might make the two Jew and Gentile into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both Jew and Gentile into one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. And through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and alien and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together, Jew and Gentile, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So are you still hungry? I'm sorry to have to do this to you again. Uh, a second Sunday of uh, serving up a platter of a, a jumbo scripture sandwich. And uh, this passage is a heaping helping, I understand. And uh, it's a bit uncharacteristic of me to take this large of a portion of scripture because there is an inherent problem with that when taking scripture in such large bites. It's, uh, it's near impossible uh, to finish it without leaving too many questions unanswered. If you take it in big chunks like this, uh, uh, we mustn't leave critical elements unaccounted for in the passage. Still, Peter is, in this sequence of events, he's going to describe last week's vision, uh, the one he received from heaven, once he reports back to Jerusalem and the church there, so there's going to be a considerable amount of repeat material within the storyline that we don't necessarily have to re-examine again closely. Uh, yet I will read it, the, the entire text, Cornelius' conversion and, and Peter's report of it to Jerusalem. And uh, so we preserve the entire storyline in context. Then I'll simply today do part one. Next week, a part two, possibly even a part three, to highlight the most crucial details. During part one today, I simply plan to solidify a theme that we began last week. Uh, that is how our Lord Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall, uh, all division between Jew and Gentile in his church. So uh, reinforcing that explanation is, is all uh, I really hope to accomplish today. Then we will return to re-examine this passage again next week. To summarize, though, um, I realize some things from this passage will be left behind as we depart today. Nonetheless, I want to be able to reassure you that you will surely not be left behind on the day that the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Nobody will be left behind. You will either know Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you will know Him as your Judge. And as we read during our scripture reading, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As we left last week, we saw Cornelius, his family, and his friends asking Peter, you know, we're all here together, Peter, we're, we're here, we've gathered, now what do you have to say? And in verse 29, Peter inquires, well, for what reason have you sent me or sent for me? 
And today Luke's narrative will reveal the concern these Gentiles have had all along. Uh, I have previously implied that the utmost concern uh, for Cornelius in his prayers has gone something, a little something like this. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is there any chance for us Gentiles? Any hope at all? Uh, So now we'll listen to Peter's reply beginning in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem, that land of the Jews includes Caesarea. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. So Peter assumes here that these Caesareans had heard about a man named Jesus. But next he shares the part about him that they did not know. Peter continues, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible Not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us, Peter says, to preach to the people and to solemnly solemnly to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead of him. All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water uh, for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And Peter ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked him to stay on for a few days. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, And in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. 
And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And uh, pay close attention. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So the angel had informed Cornelius that God's answer to your prayer is how you can be saved. Peter in verse 15 then As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave Gentiles the same gift as he gave to us Jews, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Wow. Boy, a lot to unpack here. But we quickly sense what I emphasized last Sunday That is that the Jews are very surprised to learn the new covenant has been extended to Gentiles also. They thought it was only to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And for about the first 10 years of the church age, that seemed to be the case. But at this juncture... God reveals how, uh, well, he has chosen to graft in Gentiles into Christ along with the believing remnant of the Jews. That small remnant, it's always been a small remnant of Jews going to the Old Testament all the way through. It's only ever been a portion of Jews who have been saved. But the Gentiles now are grafted in and consequently... Jews and Gentiles become two branches. They're feeding the same light of the gospel. That is an image prophesied long ago by Zechariah in chapter 4. And therefore, since we have two branches now supplying a light unto the world, uh, the the eyes of the Lord, the all-seeing eyes are searching uh, not just within the nation of Israel any longer, but, the, but they're scanning the whole earth, we are told to expect in Zechariah chapter 4, uh, to build a third and a final temple of the Lord. 
and by the Spirit of God. Folks, this third temple is Christ's church. And this temple continues to be built today as a dwelling of God in the Spirit, Ephesians 2.21. And as we read earlier during the Scripture reading, it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. This temple, Christ's church, it's, it's built, Zechariah 4, verse 6, and not by man's might, not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what was to be expected of uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, a spiritual temple. You know, follow up with me if you need, if you'd like a little more explanation about Zechariah chapter 4, the visions, and Zechariah chapter 6 as well. Um, but what I am sharing with you today, folks, has remained the historic and the predominant view within Christ's church for 2,000 years. Under the new covenant, Jew and Gentile as two branches are brought together for one final and grand temple of the Lord, and it is built by the Holy Spirit of God. Consequently, we are not waiting for a peace treaty in Israel so that Christians can help to build a temple in Jerusalem with brick and mortar. The Spirit has been building the temple of God for 2,000 years. The Apostle Paul asked Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Then he adds, be a wise master builder. You know, a stone temple would cause so much confusion. It'd have devastating consequences. Folks, ethnic Jews, they are not needing their own temple. All Jews are welcome to, to come and continue building what they started at Pentecost. This is the temple. Scripture commands that they continue to build along with us who are Gentiles. Because in contrast to what Christians in Jerusalem had originally assumed, this is original Christians in Jerusalem following Pentecost, contrast to what they had originally assumed, Israel's Messiah is not given as a refuge from judgment for only Jews. No, the Messiah and his third temple also includes Gentiles. Peter concludes then in verse 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So Acts chapter 10 reveals that mystery of the gospel that had been hidden for ages. 
In past ages, which is verse 36, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Not just the Jews. Lord of all. Jew and Gentile have become a dwelling for God's Spirit together. Together. It's also a, a not a minor unrelated footnote to recognize that uh, this is now Peter's second visit to Caesarea. And this is also Peter's second confession of Christ in Caesarea, which both become major contributing factors to our understanding the magnitude of this event. Peter's first visit came where? It's back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. It is there where we read that, uh, quote, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Simon Peter becomes the disciple who boldly replied, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah. And uh, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus also tells Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do keys do? They unlock Interestingly, in Caesarea, Peter is told he will open the kingdom of heaven. Yet in the very next verse, Jesus immediately warns his disciples that they should tell no one, at least while they're in Caesarea, tell no one that he is the Christ. Why not? You know, Peter had correctly identified Jesus as the Christ. Why tell no one? Why this messianic secret, at least, at least in this case? It's because the timing of the Gentiles who lived in Caesarea had not yet come. The gospel must go to the Jew first. The timing wasn't right here. So, so Jesus instructs his disciples in Caesarea, don't spring this too quickly. The whole Christ thing, keep it down. It's, it's not time yet here. Keep it on the down low for now. So uh, I, I kind of like to imagine Peter in this situation uh, as the group, as, as they're departing this region of Caesarea, is looking back over his shoulder at Caesarea and saying something like, I'll be back. <laughs> you follow me? Though the grafting of the Gentiles at that time was... Still a mystery, even to Peter. He didn't know he'd be back. Nonetheless, Peter would be back. And what is he going to bring with him? 
the keys to the kingdom. You know, it's not as if God's providence would have been thwarted uh, or jeopardized if the news of Peter's profession of Christ had trickled out around Caesarea. Uh, You know, Christ telling his apostles, uh, not yet. It's simply God's subtle way of weaving a discreet detail into Scripture about how the timing for Caesarea had not yet come. It'd be later. Another time, uh, it's, it's Scripture's subtle way of assuring us that Peter's profession of Jesus as the Christ, we're reminded in this that Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ had not yet reached Caesarea. Subtle way of Scripture to say, notice, it wasn't spread there. But now, and this is more than 10 years after Jesus and his apostles had departed Caesarea, now look who God sends back holding the keys to the kingdom. It's at this time now that Peter's told you, go ahead, cut loose. Let them have it. Hey, y'all, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a large crowd of Gentiles get saved. Wow. Notice how the Gentiles who are saved, they are saved through the very same man, Peter, who first unlocked God's kingdom for the Jews at Pentecost. It's because Jesus had left Peter holding the keys. Gave him to his, hey, here, hold on to these for me, will you? At the proper time, according to the Spirit's prompting, you're going to need these. And Peter became the first to unlock the kingdom for the Jews. And later on, he became the first to unlock the kingdom for the Gentiles. And the doors to the kingdom of God have remained unlocked ever since. Just so you know that there isn't a set of keys in in Rome over there in the Vatican that are kind of held in secret and kept private over there. that's, That's not it. That's not it. Friends, it's, it's no minute detail of Scripture uh, that is by accident. Only God could write a book with, with this type of detail. Subliminal, sublime, subconscious insight. And therefore, only God's Spirit can open our minds and our hearts to understand it. Peter is summoned back to Caesarea to amplify a significant point. That is that this is the same Simon Peter, the same confession, the same gospel, and the same keys that first opened the doors of God's kingdom to the Jews at Pentecost. Same thing. And this is why Acts chapter 10 is sometimes described as a Gentile Pentecost in Caesarea. Jesus doesn't send Levi or or Matthew or James or John or even Philip or, or any other apostle to do this. They didn't have the keys. 
Peter is the one who sprung the lock. In fact, God doesn't even send to Caesarea he who would be later described as the, gen, uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles. Saul didn't have the keys. And sending Saul would have only caused confusion in suggesting, you know, maybe this is a separate work of the Spirit with the Gentiles. No, no, this, this remains Simon Peter. And this has become now an identical work of the Spirit of God among the Gentiles, a God who now makes no distinction. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that Saul has remained benched by God. Saul's benched from the game. He's over in Tarsus right now. Until our very next passage in Acts chapter 11, where Barnabas is dispatched next to retrieve Saul from Tarsus. And the very next scene, what we'll find is God calling Saul, saying, Saul, yes, Lord, get back in the game. Peter's brought in the Gentiles. The door is now open to the Gentiles. You are the apostle to the Gentiles, or will become it. And from here on out, Saul is going to join the starting lineup. That's the very next scene. And Paul, along with Barnabas, now are going to step back out on the court. They're going to become the Lord's power forwards. Any basketball fans out there? Tough guys, big guys, taking it to the hoop. Paul and Barnabas will step back onto the court as power forwards, and they are going to start a full court press on the Gentiles. Still, the gospel had to go to the Jew first. Because uh, they were, it was prophesied that the Christ would go to the Jews first. But now it's also gone to the Gentiles. So God says to Saul, you know, I'm now sending you to the Gentiles because we now have ourselves a church that no longer makes any distinction. Boy, you couldn't make this up. Man himself could not create a storyline like this. And in verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter declares, Boy, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 36, he is Lord of all. The words there, uh, I most certainly understand. It's very, very strong language, distinct language by Peter to assure that n- nobody here needs to be left in confusion over this. Uh, God is not one to show partiality. The Greek term partiality, it, w- it was a unique term. Interesting point here. Unique term in Far East Oriental culture. So we're talking about the Far East, near Far East over there. Um, it was a term meant to greet one another while bowing low without looking up. 
You're like, well, why do I care? It's because to bow and then to tilt your head up was to give deference, to give respect to the other person who you were bowing to, someone as a superior to another. Uh, Meanwhile, bowing your head low means, I don't see. I don't see. The term assures complete impartiality. It, It says you don't matter to whom you are. That's not the point. The term was also, by the way, used for a judge presiding over a courtroom. He was not to see. He was not to distinguish. Call it blind uh, lady justice with the blindfold over, uh, over her eyes. This is how Peter describes God. The way it is all written is to amplify how under the new covenant, God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile, and therefore neither shall we. Instead, we find, you know, just as our scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 very clearly presented, the barrier of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been removed been broken down. Many different phrases there that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 to, to describe this wall, this, this division between the two as being gone. That doesn't mean the church won't struggle with questions for a little while yet uh, about how this all applies to circumcision and, and to ethnic behavior. I, I believe as I stated, that I had stated last week, uh, just as Peter had needed to have that vision for three times. We, we are slow learners. We all are. The early church was a lot like us. Things need to be restated and reinforced all the time. Uh, they weren't superheroes that figured it all out just like a snap. Uh, and it will take until chapter 13 and a specially called Jerusalem council for, for the church to, you know, to litigate the fine print on circumcision. They're, they're going to have to work it out. And, and at that time, what is Peter going to do? He's going to point that Jerusalem council back to Caesarea and how it was he who unlocked the door. He who was the first to unlock the kingdom for the Gentiles. And there Peter will declare in Acts chapter 15 and verse 8, God knows the heart testifying to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, speaking of Gentiles, just as he did also to us Jews, and he made no distinction between us and them. Cleansing their hearts by faith, Peter adds. So so it takes a little bit of time for the Jerusalem church to update their bylaws so, so that they will welcome in some Gentiles without the right of circumcision. But at least they learned. And remember that at that time, they didn't have the fullness of divine revelation in the 27 books of the New Testament that we now have in our possession today. They didn't have that. They weren't written yet.
full integration took a little bit of time back in Jerusalem, a little bit of time. But by the time of the Jerusalem council and when it is convened in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, along with a Greek named Silas, will have already have seen the Holy Spirit's work over in Asia Minor. And they've already seen God's Spirit work through the gospel and amongst the Gentiles and the Jews together in numerous cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. So, so once they report to Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council how the Spirit had been working in Asia Minor in these churches, full integration wins the day. The advancing and the unfolding record of Acts. The, the Acts of the Apostles, by the way. The advancing and unfolding record of the Acts of the Apostles begins, but it no, does not end in Caesarea. It doesn't end with Cornelius and his household. And the record of Acts reveals that God has broken down all barriers between Jew and Gentile so that we will continue building together. There are not two different churches. And in contrast to the early Jerusalem church, we now have the entire New Testament, the entire Bible, the unveiling of the mystery of the Old Testament in Christ. We have that all in our possession, which reveals the whole story in great detail. Again, this story didn't end in Caesarea with Cornelius. And therefore, the following is a sample of what is written to the churches in cities that were comprised of both Jews and Gentiles building Christ's church together. To the church in Colossae, find that in Col- this in Colossians 3 verse 10, quote, put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. To the church in Corinth, Paul writes, Chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. Then later in chapter 12, and verse 13. By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made of one spirit to drink. Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And later in chapter 10 and verse 11, 
Notice where this is, by the way, chapter 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's right before Romans 11, where it talks about the two branches and being grafted in by the Gentiles. Paul says before he even goes there, there's no distinction. People want to go to a one single verse in Romans 11 and say, uh, and say that all Israel will be saved. They think that all Jews are saved. But you have to go previously in Romans to find out Paul says what? Not all Israel is Israel. Meaning not all ethnic Jews are believing Israel. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, this would be Acts chapter 14 and verse 1, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed uh, both of Jews and of Greeks. You know, do we, we suppose those Jews and those Greeks over in Iconium there, do you, do you imagine that they opened up competing churches across the street from one another? No. One church. Jews and Gentiles together. That's what Scripture commands. I'll offer one more. Galatians 3 verse 28. This doesn't exhaust the passages, by the way. Uh, but I'll offer one more. Galatians 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So we are heirs according to the promise. We have been grafted into the rich root of Israel. We have not replaced Israel. Anybody think that we've replaced Israel? No, we have been grafted in and joined the Jews. Because not all Israel is Israel. Therefore, the, um, the lesson in Caesarea is that the Gentiles do not replace, but are grafted in and included along with the Jews in Christ's church. Uh, participants together, Jew and Gentile, under the new covenant. How could you possibly conclude otherwise? Sadly, some people do. And after what we've witnessed at Pentecost and, you know, in the first 10 chapters of Acts, how could anyone possibly claim that the Jews have not yet received the new covenant. But some do. It is proposed by a few that Jews will need to wait until Jesus returns when supposedly at that time the nation of Israel will receive a second chance at Pentecost and will become 
at some point in the future, participants in the new covenant. Follow the problem there? No, no, that, that is not right. Peter already sprung that lock for the Jews at Pentecost. You could call him the rock who sprung the lock. I made that up all by myself. Just like us, the nation of Israel and all Jews have their opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as Savior today. That door has long been opened. We learned last Sunday, in case you weren't here with us, from the letter to the Hebrews. To the Hebrews. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. That the Jews, along with us, have received the new covenant and that the old is obsolete. The, um, the idea, that concept that the nation of Israel and ethnic Jews, uh, Hebrews, uh, have not received the new covenant, that was first popularized in the 19th century. It's popularized... Uh, uh, Sometime after the life, but the guy who first articulated that was a, was a 19th century British theologian named John Nelson Darby. And around the year 1830, that's not when it became popular. That didn't happen until the 1900s. But around the year 1830, Darby created his own, this, this is a brand new, he created his own systematic theology that insists Jews remain separate from Gentiles during the church age. At least that Israel remains separate from Gentiles during the church age. And Darby concluded that the nation of Israel, the Jews, have never received the new covenant. Even though Pentecost and the first ten chapters of Acts dismiss and prove that as a fallacy. In Darby's theology, it consists of many moving parts and many different charts, complex charts. He proposed Christ's church was meant for Gentiles, maybe a few straggler Jews, and that before Christ can return to reign on earth, the Gentile church must first be removed from earth so that the Jews who will left, be left behind with the pagan Gentiles will have their fair chance to receive the new covenant. So Darby concluded the Gentile church must be removed first. In the year 1830, right at that year anyhow, I don't know the exact date. But in the year 1830, John Nelson Darby became the inventor of what is today popularized as a pre-tribulation rapture. That's the truth. Christ will return for his church and those left behind will get a second chance. Uh, His new theories at the time were never the view of the historic Christian church. Yeah, Darby came up with this all on, all on, his, on his own. 
And for varied reasons, his theology became quite popular in England and the United States during the 20th century. It took off, kind of caught on, caught a fire. I don't have time to explain all that today. That'd go too far. Um, But if you have questions about Darby's system of theology, it's called dispensationalism. Uh, I can provide material. And Darby is referred to, Darby by name is referred to as the father of dispensationalism. He's the one who came up with it around the year 1830. Some dispensational concepts are acceptable. Uh, For example, there, there are surely distinctions between how God related to Israel under the old covenant versus how God relates to both Jew and Gentile together under the new. There are some distinctions there. Um, Christians have always recognized that there are some distinctions between the two covenants, right? Or else why would you have a new covenant? Other dispensational proposals, such as all ethnic Jews are all saved. All throughout history, all Jews are saved. That was printed in the original Schofield Study Bible. And that Old Testament Jews were saved by keeping the law. That was in the Schofield Study Bible. Um, Revisions have been made now. They've altered it. But those were the original uh, notes of it. Uh, Those things, those proposals that all Jews are saved, those are unacceptable. Those ideas of dispensationalism uh, or have existed in dispensationalism are unacceptable. Uh, These become what our church constitution would classify as, uh, quote, uh, deficient doctrines of dis- dispensationalism. They, they land under a category of our constitution called errant theological movements. Deficient, the deficient doctrines of it. Um, dispensationalism is a very complex system, and we just have to be ready to call balls and strikes, okay? Here is one strike that I believe becomes so obvious in our lesson about Cornelius today. This is one foul ball of dispensationalism. The reality is the new covenant was offered to the nation of Israel and to all the Jews at Pentecost by Peter. And the new covenant was also extended to Gentiles later on in Caesarea by Peter. And ever since, the doors to God's kingdom are unlocked and remain equally open to all. Therefore, on the day of the Lord, when Jesus Christ will return and he will rapture his church, nobody gets left behind. Nobody receives a second chance. Not even Kirk Cameron, though he is dreamy. Um, The Left Behind series, perhaps entertaining, folks, it is a complete farce. Complete farce. Um, Those who are left behind, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Quote, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, of those who are left behind, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. 
This is this isn't a insignificant discussion. And, and there won't be any, you know, mappable flowchart uh, domino of events leading up until this day that Christ returns in glory. Unlike the movies, unlike the movies, the world will not be plunged into global chaos before Christ returns. How do I know that? How do we know that? Because Christ repeatedly states, and so do the apostles, that on the day of his return, it will be like any other day. They'll be buying, they'll be selling, they'll be marrying, they'll be building, they'll be mocking. Where is the promise of his coming? And Peter writes, and the day of the Lord will come like a thief. They won't be expecting it. You won't be mapping it out by wars and rumors of wars or attacks by Hamas and Israel. You can't know the day nor the hour or map out the unfolding of the end. Can't, all I know is it's going to be a typical day. And, and, and I take a lot of you know, solace in that because it could be today. Um, we're told by Christ in Luke chapter 17 and by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 that it's going to be like the days of Lot. It's going to be days like the days of Noah and destruction will come upon them suddenly. It's like a thief in the night. Nobody knows the day. Nobody receives a second chance. And the historic Christian church before Darby never believed that. And it's not the predominant view around the world today. It's gotten a lot of traction in America and Great Britain. Because we've been told we'll never have to face tribulation. And that really sells well with us in a prosperous society. Um, And to suggest to anyone, Jew or Gentile, that when Christ appears, they will receive a second opportunity. It's a disservice to them. And especially to those who are Jews. It's a strike. It's a foul ball. It's an out in the bottom of the ninth. Because the day that Christ returns, folks, it's game over. And he's going to establish his kingdom and he is going to reign on earth. In regards to uh, Darby's views on dispensationalism, um, recently the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, uh, Albert Moeller, uh, many of you probably heard of them of him. Uh, he did a radio interview recently with an author of a book, who a historian who had traced Darby's theology. Uh, I can point you to it. I'd encourage everyone to listen all the way through the end. Um, you can Google it if you like. Here it is. Just Google Albert Moeller, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And Moeller is very gracious. He always is. But he amplifies how Darby's influence is now fading really quickly. Not just around the world, but in America. Because uh, Darby's cons- conclusions are so difficult to reconcile to Scripture. 
Moeller expresses that seminaries, even Dallas Theological Seminary where I went, they aren't taking historic dispensationalism especially serious any longer. Listen for yourself. Um, My concern isn't so much for Darby as it is for the Jew. They are joint heirs with us under the new covenant. Their time is now. And the Jews and the land of Israel need to be evangelized with a powerful testimony from God's word and the preaching of the gospel now. They shouldn't be told, boy, wait until Christ returns. On the day, once the church is gone, Israel, get ready. You're really going to have a second chance then. No, do not tell them that. That's what some of them have been led to believe. Um, Jesus told his disciples, in fact, concerning Israel, he says, Truly I say to you, this is Matthew 10, verse 23, Truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. You know, suggesting it is our responsibility to continue the work of evangelizing Israel, city to city in Israel, and preaching to every successional generation of Jews the gospel all the way up until the day Christ returns. And the job of evangelizing the Jew, the responsibility of our evangelizing the Jew, it won't be finished until the day Christ returns. That message, by the way, that with fervor, the land of Israel must continue to be evangelized until the day that Christ returns, it's a completely different message than some Jews are being told today. Um, As I stated, we have some professing to be Christians, some are, some you don't know, um, who've been telling the Jews for decades, even a century, that the church is not for them. That the church is for Gentiles, but not for Jews. How ironic that this is the exact same, but contrasting, How ironic that this is the exact error this early church in Jerusalem had made. They had made the mistake of thinking that the church is only for Jews, but not for Gentiles. And today we have beliefs that the church is only for Gentiles and not for Jews. Isn't that something? We've come full circle. At least the early church had some excuse. You know, they didn't have the whole Bible yet. All these passages that tell us there's no distinction. Uh, we do. We know the gospel was to the Jews first, and remains offered to all Jews today. Uh, many of Darby's dis- dispensational ideas, they're, they're not going to age well at the judgment seat of Christ. That you told people, just wait till you get the second chance. That, that's not going to age well at all. Uh, we are building God's temple today, not by might, nor by power, but by God's spirit. It's a church. And who do you say that I am, said Jesus. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and upon this rock I will build my church. The church is God's temple. Through the gospel, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been completely removed. And we are supposed to be building the temple of God together because the blood of Christ has removed every barrier between us. It's been broken down. Ephesians chapter 2, our scripture reading earlier. Why would we expect God to erect new barriers and another dividing wall? Won't happen in Christ. Certain uh, dispensational ideas, like uh, we should be helping Israel to build a temple so that Jews can start hoisting sacrifices of animal carcasses in place of lifting up the Son of God as the one and only sacrifice, those things are anathema. Those ideas are anathema. No other sacrifice, no other temple. God doesn't want it. Time is becoming short. Just as Cornelius and the Gentiles did in Caesarea, the Jews need to hear the exact same message that Peter preached in Caesarea. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. That's the message we have, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. Let's pray. Father, to consider how you've included us, sinners, um, unfit, unworthy, unloving. You think of Romans chapter 1 and the description of humanity. Uh, We definitely uh, fit into that category uh, before we were redeemed through your son's blood. Uh, But now, but now, Uh, You've renewed us through faith. And by grace, we have been saved through faith. That not of ourselves is a gift of God. Um, We don't boast about anything. For your redeeming grace has been extended to the earth. And as to whatever capacity we can continue to be involved with that, uh, Father, please employ us in our efforts to proclaim the gospel of your Son. Give us the opportunities, the open doors, the wisdom and the strength to do the work that you've left us here for. And give us joy and peace in knowing that you will soon return, ascending your son to gather us together to himself in Christ's name.